welcome once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast, focusing on a movie a day. So we're continuing our sojourn through all of the James Bond movies. We have done Connery, we've done Lazenby, we've done Roger Moore. It's time to move on to what I suppose people call the modern day era of 007. I always thought Timothy Dalton was a great Bond, but maybe just the wrong man to follow Sir Roger. Since Moore's run was so successful, it was too jarring a change from a tongue-in-cheek Bond to a more violent and cold-blooded Bond. But with Pierce Brosnan, I think they hit the jackpot. You know, he was perfect in the role. Athletic, good-looking, suave, and a great actor. He was unfortunately saddled with some terrible scripts and subpar movies. And then there's Daniel Craig, the unwanted Bond. Well, he was until the first movie came out. Let's kick things off then with Timothy Dalton and The Living Daylights. You were fantastic. We're free. Kara, we're inside a Russian airbase in the middle of Afghanistan. The Dalton Bond era begins with a movie that is probably much better than you remember. Ask anyone to name five random 007 movies and chances are they won't even mention The Living Daylights. And that's a shame as it really is an entertaining movie in its own right and a great addition to the Bond pantheon. It all starts with a pretty great pre-credits sequence where Bond is involved in a training exercise in Gibraltar. Except someone is playing for keeps and killing off the double O agents involved in the exercise. Bond is able to stop him and of course ends up dropping in on a glamorous lady. There's great action, some excellent stunt work and just a hint of mischief to this new 007. So far, so good. The movie then settles down to some usual Bond themes, arms dealers, fake defections and someone who wants to start World War 3. Again, keeping up with the times, this comes dangerously close to an Indiana Jones movie at times, with one of the main sequences involving horseback and a desert chase. Not really a usual setting for Bond, but here it actually works. I think Dalton actually laid the template for where Daniel Craig has taken the character. You know, he's a cold, ruthless killer, a take on Bond that would be taken to even more extremes in the following movie. Here he does display a lighter side with a few well-chosen quips, but Dalton is definitely closer to Connery than Moore. Overall, a very entertaining movie, with a very 80s but awesome theme song, and definitely the better of the two Dalton movies, 8 out of 10. So we move on then to the second of the Timothy Dalton movies, License to Kill. Senior Bond, you got big cojones, you come here, to my place, without references, carrying a piece, throwing around a lot of money, but you should know something. Nobody saw you come in, so nobody has to see you come out. Again, I did a little bit of a poster search here and I came across a really interesting one. The first poster that was ever revealed for License to Kill. Apparently the Americans were unsure as to what revoked meant, so the title was actually changed. The original title being License Revoked, and it ended up having to be changed to License to Kill. Ah, our transatlantic cousins. License to Kill remains the most brutal and adult movie of the Bond universe. It was again a result of the Bond movies trying to keep up with current trends. Instead of sticking with the successful family-friendly exploits of 007, License to Kill was a response to the success of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. The producers thought the audiences were after much more grown-up fare, but unfortunately their faith was misplaced and this was one of the least commercially successful 007 movies. The plot is as straightforward as they come and a rare insight into the personal life of James Bond. Indeed, the sheer essence of Bond has always been that he has no attachments and nothing but a straight focus on the mission for Queen and Country. Here, he lets his emotions get the better of him and he sets out on a revenge mission when his close personal friend Felix Leiter is attacked and left for dead. His wife is also brutally murdered. This leads Bond to Sanchez, an elusive Colombian drug dealer whom Felix Leiter had recently imprisoned. 
Robert Devay is very good as the villain, bringing a suave and menacing presence to James Bond's foe, and they even become associates as the movie goes on. The action here is much more grounded in reality, save for the pre-credit sequence which has Bond hanging out of a helicopter and fishhooking a small plane, on Felix Leiter's wedding day, no less. And it's definitely a lot more graphic than any previous movie, and arguably any movie since. It's not a bad movie by any means, but for me it represents what a Bond movie shouldn't be. There is no humour in it at all, and I think a Bond movie should be an escape from reality, not a representation of the darker side of it. Great theme tune though. 6 out of 10. So that brings an end to the Timothy Dalton era, and we would have to wait another 6 years for the next movie. And that next movie was 1995's GoldenEye. Do you destroy every vehicle you get into? Standard operating procedure, boys with toys. So that aforementioned gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye was six years. The longest gap between any other two Bond movies was actually two years. So the fact that it was three times that was a big deal. After License to Kill didn't do that well, the world was beginning to ask, is James Bond now irrelevant? Was he a product of the Cold War and therefore not needed anymore? Goldeneye needed to be fantastic. It needed to reintroduce 007 to the world. And it did so in spectacular fashion. I put Goldeneye in the top three Bond movies of all time. It was the first one that I actually was able to see on the big screen and I took advantage of that fact by going to see it three times at the cinema. Well, the cinema that used to be on the Dublin Road. Pierce Brosnan was the new James Bond, having been offered the role previously but unable to get out of TV commitments. Stop me if that sounds familiar. And I think he makes a great 007. He has the suave nature of Moore, the charm and charisma of Connery and the ruthlessness of Dalton. GoldenEye also has another one of those awesome pre-credit sequences as James and 006 infiltrate a Russian weapons facility. They were back on track with big stunts and stunning visuals with the world record bungee jump and Bond jumping off a cliff on a motorbike chasing after a plane. Then the Tina Turner theme tune hits. As a pre-credit sequence it's up there with The Spy Who Loved Me and it reintroduced 007 to the world with the much needed bang the franchise needed. There are action beats here for the ages, you know, the tank chase through St. Petersburg, the escape from the holding cells in the Russian factory, the escape from the booby trap train, and then the end sequence at the satellite lair. There is the right mixture of family-friendly action and adult themes and storytelling. The director, Martin Campbell, deserves a massive amount of credit for making Bond relevant again in the 90s, and he would actually go on to do it again in the 2000s with Casino Royale essential Bond viewing and a great way to introduce a newbie to the series. You know, they really did do the marketing campaign around the fact that Bond was back and that you knew who he was. You know, there's a poster which is, there is no substitute on it, 007. I remember the first trailer that came up was, it was talking about a new world with new threats, but you can always rely on one man. And Pierce Brosnan would walk out and shoot all the letters away until it spelled 007. And then he walks up to the camera and says, the name's Bond. You know the rest. Brilliant. Cannot recommend GoldenEye highly enough. Which moves us on to the second of the Pierce Brosnan movies, which is Tomorrow Never Dies. Do you know I used to look in the papers every day for your obituary? Well, I'm sorry to keep disappointing you. So with the absolutely amazing GoldenEye, after the pride comes the fall. Tomorrow Never Dies is definitely one of the weaker Bond movies. And a lot of this I put down to the fact that the villain, a media mogul by the name of Elliot Carver, is terribly weak and non-threatening. 
you know, I, I talked about it in a previous podcast that any Bond movie is only as good as the villain. And that's where this one falls flat. His motivations of starting World War III so he can have the exclusive media rights is one of the stupider plots in Bond history. And there have been some pretty outlandish plots along the way. If the world goes to war, he's probably going to end up dead with the rest of them. Pierce Brosnan, though, is very comfortable in the role again and his easy charm does at least make the movie watchable. There's even a couple of great action moments as well. You know, the pre-credit sequence is as reliable as ever as Bond breaks up an arms deal in the mountains. The remote control car sequence in the car park is very strong. And the motor par- motorbike chase through Hong Kong is pretty cool. But as well as the weak villain, the Bond girls here are disappointing. Terry Hatcher is not a great actress and should have stuck to TV. Michelle Yeoh is one of the world's greatest female action stars and she's essentially reduced to a bit part here. All in all, not a great Bond movie, but also unfortunately, not Brosnan's weakest. 5 out of 10. We then move on to the third one and the last Bond movie of the 90s, the third Brosnan movie I should say, which is The World Is Not Enough. You're not retiring anytime soon, Q. Are you? Now pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second, always have an escape plan. Now this is more like it. Let's get the elephant out of the room first of all. Denise Richards is without doubt one of the worst cast Bond girls in the franchise's history. The name Christmas Jones is stupid enough, but we're supposed to believe that she's a nuclear scientist? However, this is balanced out by the presence of Sophie Marceau as Electra, who proves to be one of the best Bond girls. Again, with what the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies always did excel in for me were the pre-credit sequences. The boat chase down the Thames is absolutely fantastic, brilliantly shot, fast-paced, just a, a brilliant action sequence. You know, it's terrifically exciting, beautifully edited, and very well scored to the familiar Bond theme tune. The rest of the movie continues at a similar pace. Long before Skyfall made the sins of M's past well known, the world is not enough dealt with a kidnapping case on which she was the chief advisor. She made a call which comes back to haunt her and put her in the line of sight of one of the world's most feared terrorists. What's great about the world is not enough is it makes Bond a spy again. He relies on his wits, his intelligence as well as his skills with a weapon. He follows the clues which takes him all over the globe and straight to the feet of Renault, played with scenery tune Relish by Robert Carlyle. This was Brosnan back on track, but again he would follow it up with a less than stellar effort. 8 out of 10. Which brings us on to Brosnan's last movie, and possibly the worst Bond movie of them all. Die Another Day. You know, you're cleverer than you look. Still, better than looking cleverer than you are. Die Another Day was released in 2002, and on the 40th anniversary of Dr. No. It was supposed to be a celebration of Bond movies. It would reference previous movies and take its place amongst the very best of them. Well, that was the plan. It didn't work. Once again, as is uh, par for the course with the Brosnan Bond movies, the movie started well. A great pre credit sequence that had Bond in North Korea. It ended in a way we were unfamiliar with, with Bond being captured. Not only is he captured, but he is tortured within an inch of his life and left broken and beaten. It is at this time Madonna's, quote, theme song, end quote, plays. It is comfortably the worst Bond theme of all time for me. An electro-pop mess that someone making a tune on Garage Band in their bedroom would be ashamed of. From here, the movie goes swiftly downhill. 
It has villains completely changing their appearance, an awful performance from Toby Stevens as Gustav Graves, an even worse performance from Hal Berry as Jinx, doing her best to be an even worse Bond girl than Denise Richards, it must be said. Invisible cars, Bond surfing, which was fine in the Marira because it was all tongue-in-cheek, but this movie is trying its best to be serious. The main problem for me is, aside from an awful plot which has the villain in an ice palace, is that it is over-reliant on CGI. Bond movies have always prided themselves on doing as many practical stunts and set pieces as possible. Here they use the computer and a green screen wherever possible and it really shows. It just sucks you out of the movie at every conceivable opportunity. Brosnan tries his best here but even he can't save this mess. I always thought he was a great 007 who was let down by bad movies. This is proved beyond doubt here. 3 out of 10. And so we come to the last Bond movie of the week and Daniel Craig's first movie of them all. His debut as James Bond in 2006's Casino Royale. Falco Martini. Shaken or stirred? Do I look like I give a damn? While not quite the six year gap that the Bond movies experienced between Dalton and Brosnan, the four year gap to Casino Royale felt like an eternity. The landscape for action and spy cinema had dramatically changed. The Bourne movies were now being held up as the best example of the spy genre. Comic book movies were starting to get more and more popular after Batman Begins and Sin City. Harry Potter was the British franchise. And then they went and hired a blonde. It's amazing to think that there was a time when there was a website called craignotbond.com. Daniel Craig, suffice to say, was not a popular choice. He's too blonde. He's not good looking. He's not a good enough actor. These were just some of the opinions that he turned completely on their head. Casino Royale is, along with Goldeneye and The Man with the Golden Gun, it forms my top three Bond movies. It is simply a stunning return to form after the awful Dan other day. It's up there with how Batman Begins was able to follow the deplorable Batman and Robin. It was all about taking Bond back to his roots and making him relevant once more. We go right back to Ian Fleming's first ever book, Casino Royale. We see a rough around the edges 007 and we actually get to see how he achieved his 00 status. The plot revolves around a very lucrative poker game held by Le Chiffre at Casino Royale in Monte Carlo. Bond must defeat him, otherwise they will be directly funding terrorism. The poker scenes are as tense as it gets, but the action scenes in the movie are no slouch either. Once again, as is the strength of modern Bond movies, the pre-credit sequence is amazing. Shot in black and white, it is violent, visceral and serves the story well. Every part is perfectly cast. Eva Green may be the most beautiful and sophisticated Bond girl in the history of the franchise. Mads Mikkelsen is dangerous and menacing as Le Chiffre, And in a holdover from the Brosnan movies, Judi Dench is back as M, strong as ever. I really dig the theme tune by Chris Cornell as well. You Know My Name was a perfect way to reintroduce Bond. Once again, Martin Campbell was able to do it. Perfect Bond filmmaking. 10 out of 10. And there we have it. So we have now entered the Daniel Craig era, which we will continue into next week and finish off the Bond movies. And I might just actually review them next to those uh, aforementioned Bourne movies. So I hope you guys dug this as always. Hope you're staying safe out there. Until next time.